Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Sky History's Not What You Thought You Knew. I'm your host, Dr. Fern Riddell, and in this episode, we'll be diving into the incredible story of the Night Witches, an all-female Russian fighter pilot regiment from the Second World War and I'll be speaking to Dr. Raina Pennington and Professor Kristen Godsey. Now, a quick warning before we start, near the end of this episode, our experts share some graphic descriptions of warfare and battle, especially the atrocities faced by female soldiers on the front line. I think this is really important for us to hear, to help us better understand the realities of what these women were facing and just how brave their choices were. But first, it's 1942, and we are on the Eastern Front. It's pitch black, nighttime within the German lines. In the distance, you hear the soft, gentle sound of a plane engine getting closer. Are you in danger? Is it a bomber? The sound draws nearer and nearer and then suddenly stops. You breathe a sigh of relief as you think the danger has passed. But has it? The flights of Stalin's legendary night witches are relatively little known of in the West, but they became one of the most decorated units in the Soviet armed forces during the Second World War. I'm fascinated by this period of history because I know next to nothing about the war on the Eastern Front, the main battleground for Germany and Russia. So for others like me, let's set the scene a little. For much of the early part of the Second World War, Joseph Stalin, Premier of the Soviet Union, was dismissive of the idea that Germany might try to invade Russia. But in 1941 they did, and by the end of that year, German troops had reached as far as the gates of Moscow, Russia's capital city. This terrifying incursion into the heart of Russia shifted Stalin's entire approach to the war. He needed every available soldier on the front line. And in Russia, that didn't just mean every man who could fight, it meant every woman too. Since the Russian Revolution of 1917, which granted women an equal role in Soviet society, Russian women had enjoyed far more freedoms than their Western counterparts, and throughout the Second World War, fought and died for their country as snipers and fighter pilots, roles denied to women in the West. So to give us an insight into who these women were, we've recruited a guest who's interviewed many of these veterans herself. I'm joined today by Dr. Raina Pennington, who's Professor of History at Norwich University and an expert in Russian and European military history. She's also a former Air Force intelligence officer and served as a Soviet analyst with F-4 and F-16 fighter squadrons. That is quite a bio to be introducing our amazing expert today. Thank you so much, Raina. Can you tell me a little bit about the Night Witches? Uh, sure. The, the Night Witches were one of a number of uh, aviation regiments, of course, in the, the Soviet Air Force, one of three that were mostly or all female. And the night witches uh, flew night bombers. And in this case, they were PO2 night bombers, which were uh, a wood and canvas biplane. And um, they flew at night, as you might guess, almost unarmed, except for the, the few bombs that they were dropping. Uh, all weather throughout the year, three years straight in the course of the war. Where did they get their nickname from? 
That's a really good question. Uh, there's, it, it's tough to track down. So it's attributed to the Germans and most of the references I've found come after the war. It just somehow made them more uh, frightening or better propaganda worthy to, to think that it was women flying these little biplanes over them. Uh, but the title stuck and uh, some women like it, some don't. Uh, but we, we do see the term in Russian later on too because it's just so easily identifiable. Uh, but yeah, night witches is kind of a, a fraught term, you know, and, and the, the Germans maybe you know, used it because it captures the idea of a nightmare. Um, in a way. But as I said, some of the women veterans like it, and most of them I found are not really thrilled about it. So you you have done um, something that historians, or that as, as historians, we love to do, which is talk to the people who are alive at the time, and who were actually carrying out these uh, incredible sort of feats of courage in many ways that we don't expect to think of as women in war. What was it like interviewing them? I'm still in the process of transcribing and trying to make those interviews publicly available to other people. Um, but uh, I, I, I was so happy that you know, I had a chance to go over and meet with these people. And I got there on uh, a day that uh, they used to all meet. The three women's regiments that were formed by Marina Raskova had their own reunion every May. And so I could go to the park. Uh, they met in the park outside the Bolshoi Theater. But it was really magical to be in that park on a beautiful day in May and have these women and men veterans all around, some that had been in fighter aircraft and some that had been in dive bombers, and then the ones that were in the night bombers. All of these people there in one place. Now, you've mentioned Marina. Can you tell me a little bit more about her and the role that she played in World War II? Uh, so Marina Raskova was a test pilot in the 1930s, and she had gained fame for a number of record-setting flights that they did in the 1930s. She was primarily a navigator, although she became a pilot, and she was uh, teaching at the Funza Academy. She uh, had uh, become quite well-known in the Soviet Union after several record-setting flights, and then after one flight, where uh, the plane flew all the way from the western part of the Soviet Union out to Siberia and then uh, because of weather couldn't get all the way to their destination and it, and it had to uh, crash land. And Raskova, because of her position in the navigator station, had actually had to bail out before they landed. And so she, she landed separately. She spent uh, several days wandering around in the taiga. It took some time for the rescue efforts to find them, uh, but it became really a sensational thing that uh, she had you know, been alone out in the, the Siberian taiga, and they had all survived this and, and set a world record for distance at the same time. So how do we go from heroes to fighter pilot leaders? Uh, when the war broke out, Raskova was in Moscow teaching and, and because of her fame, she had certain connections and she immediately had the idea that women should fly, that she knew of thousands of women pilots already in the Soviet Union and she knew that recruiters were not uh, taking them. So she, she went around various offices in Moscow, literally carrying a suitcase full of letters of volunteers who wanted to fly. Wow. She, she had a plan. She was very organized, very energetic. And she thought these women should be organized into uh, their own regiments because she was afraid that if they were dispersed in the Soviet Air Force, they, they wouldn't get the opportunities uh, to be in combat and to do the things that she knew that they could do. Uh, so there were women in the Soviet Air Force already. There, there were a few um, that were already in positions and that were flying in combat right from the beginning, that were just in regular Air Force units, but not a great many. And all the ones who were trying to volunteer when the war began were generally being rejected or told that they should just be instructor pilots, they should stay behind the lines, free up men to fight. And Raskova didn't think that was what women should be doing. She knew that these were experienced pilots and that they could do better than just, you know, farming out young guys straight out of school. So she wanted them in combat uh, as soon as possible. And so she thought she could organize these units and, and make that happen. And she did. So this is, she became very successful at this. And there's these three regiments on there of, of fighter pilots in, in the Soviet Union at this time. How did they train? Where did they train? What was life like for the women who joined these regiments? 
she pulls this together in October of 1941 and she holds interviews and she personally interviewed every volunteer. They ended up selecting about a thousand people in this first recruitment. And so she interviewed more than that. Uh, but they, they chose all the women, and this is for every position, pilots, navigators, armorers, mechanics, clerks, every last position that they were going to need for these units. So they, they got their thousand recruits together and uh, they were sent for training to a base in Ingalls, uh, which is off to the southeast of Moscow. And uh, in mid-October, and this was the time when there was that massive panic in Moscow as the Germans were approaching and people really thought the Germans were going to come in and, and maybe occupy Moscow. Uh, so there's, there's a horrible panic going on in Moscow. These young women are are marching off uh, to the train station, being loaded on train cars, spent almost a week trying to get to Ingalls because their trains kept getting sidelined. Uh, and then they finally make it to, to Ingalls in, in late October. But imagine they're doing this training right through the winter of 1941. So during the Battle of Moscow, when the Germans are freezing to death outside of Moscow, you've got women training, some of them to fly at night in an open cockpit biplane in that same winter weather. It's just unimaginable that, you know, their, their introduction to training is taking place in that winter of 41 to 42. So what would a day's training involve? How do you become a fighter pilot in the Soviet Union at this time? That's, uh, yeah, these women mostly were fairly experienced. And in fact, uh, the, the biggest shortage they had was in finding navigators because there weren't that many women trained just as navigators. There were a lot of women pilots. So an awful lot of pilots had to become navigators, which they weren't necessarily uh, happy about doing. Um, for the pilots, their training was mostly getting used to their combat aircraft because they already knew how to fly. Uh, so they, they had to learn how to fly the particular aircraft they were going to be in, a Yak-1 for the fighters or the um, PE-2 eventually for the, the dive bombers. And what are those, what are those like as, as a plane? Uh, well, the Yak-1 and the PE-2 were very modern aircraft and challenging in that way. And so there was a little bit more of a learning curve uh, to these, these top-of-the-line aircraft. Uh, the, uh, the, the night bombers were different because all of these women knew how to fly a PO-2 already. Since the PO-2 was the standard training plane in all of the air clubs, uh, it was like Cessnas are for our air clubs. So everyone knew how to fly them, but now learning how to fly them at night and drop bombs from them was something totally different because these planes had almost no instrumentation. So the navigators in the, in the PO2s had to learn how to navigate uh, in the dark with almost no aids from the ground uh, and how to drop bombs accurately that was, that was a, a big challenge, as you can imagine. Uh, so uh, the, the bulk of that training, you know, the, the navigators went through their own separate courses and, and they spent more hours a day than anyone else in getting up to speed. Uh, and then you've got all the young women who were learning to be mechanics and armorers. Uh, and you know, most of them had, had no military background and, and no training in that work. So um, I, you know, I, I feel for those mechanics out there in the winter conditions too, trying to figure out, you know, or being trained how to uh, put these aircraft together after they've been shot up. Can you put those aircraft back together after they've been shot up? Because what we, the little that we do know about the night witches or that we, we know about in popular culture is that the planes were really almost they're portrayed as being held together with tape. You know, these aren't these aren't something that you would necessarily choose to go up in if you had to. And yet they do. They go up in and they are carrying out these incredible attacks. Right. Uh, and, and they had first started using the PO2s as night bombers uh, at the Battle of Moscow. And they, they just, you know, were bringing in everything they could get because after they had lost so many aircraft during uh, the German invasion, they're literally pulling these things from training units. Now these were before the women were in combat. So these are, are men's units, but they, they figured that even this plane, you know, it was too vulnerable to fly in the daytime, you know, as, as you say, because it's wood and it has no self-defenses. Um, but they, they figured they could use it at night and it, it couldn't do a lot. It didn't carry that many bombs. You know, and it wasn't terribly accurate dropping bombs from a little plane at night, but it could 
inflict some damage to morale. Uh, it could keep the German soldiers from sleeping. Uh, it could certainly rattle them. And, and, and the Germans wrote about that later on. So even if the, the, the actual damage wasn't a lot, uh, it, it really disturbed the Germans. You know, it was a big psychological effect. So they'd already been doing that. Um, and uh, yes, the, the aircraft were vulnerable, but at night, it was harder for the Germans to shoot them down. So they, they're generally uh, was not a threat from the air. Uh, eventually the Germans brought in some night fighters, but they didn't have to worry so much at night about that. So it was mostly ground fire. It was uh, anti-aircraft artillery. Um, and uh, that was the biggest thing. And then occasionally other kinds of weapons. Uh, the, the plane was vulnerable. It would set fire. It was like a flying torch waiting to be lit if it was hit just right. But on the other hand, you know, we have many, many um, accounts and pictures of planes coming home with dozens and dozens of holes in them and wow. then being put back together. You know, one advantage of having a, a canvas and wood airplane is that you can put it back together again pretty quickly. So it's really astonishing sometimes that the way that they were able to um, recover and, and turn those aircraft around and keep them flying. So how many missions did the Night Witches carry out? Uh, the, the 588th, or later would become the 46th Guards, uh, flew about 24,000 combat missions in the course of the war. That's incredible. How, how does that compare to the male regiments? Is it the same? Is it more? Is it less? It's, it is right up there with the top regiments and more than most. They, they, they developed ways to fly more missions than anyone else. So uh, that's why they got the guards designation in, in early 1943. Uh, that was very early in the war for a unit to be recognized as a guards unit. And you had to meet various kinds of uh, criteria to, to get the guards designation. What is that, that designation? What does that mean? Guards was a recognition that your unit has excelled in combat and you got a few perks from that. You got slightly different uniforms, uh, a little bit better food, a little bit better pay, but mostly it was the prestige. So these are really women who are recognized in the Soviet Union and in their country and in, their, in the military as not just professionals, but very much the best of the best. Yes. You know, when you, you fly at night, of course, you have to be flying in the hours of darkness uh, because otherwise German fighters are going to pick you off. So that varies with the season. And because of Russia's latitude, that means summer nights are fairly short and winter nights are the long ones. So you fly the most in the winter because you get the most missions in. Uh, so an average would be somewhere between five and 10 sorties a night per pilot, per crew. Because uh, PO2s, because they don't have much range, they're little bitty airplanes, so they're, they're stationed very close to the front. So a mission might be, you know, around anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour total. Uh, so you're going to take off, fly, get back, turn, and go off and do it all over again. And typically, you know, as I said, it might be five or 10 missions a night, but there were times, especially in the, in the 46, that they could put this... There were some nights when some pilots made 15 or 18 flights a night. I mean, if you can imagine 15 combat flights in a night. I can't imagine that. I can't, I can't imagine that. Each one, you know, getting to the target, the, you know, the, the chance of being shot down 15 times in one night is something I think, and maybe, you know, it's, it's snowing. It's almost always going to be cold up there in this open cockpit that you're in. Uh, it's, it's just something I think none of us can really imagine that I haven't been through it. Not at all. You mentioned that they, these, these planes, these tiny little planes, don't have any uh, defense. They don't have any uh, guns on them. You know, these aren't things that um, can defend themselves if they are attacked in the air or from the ground. Do the, does anyone on the plane have anything to protect themselves? Do they have parachutes? Um, they have a pistol. <laughs> so they have a pistol but no parachute. <laughs> No, they, it, it wasn't common for parachutes to be used in these planes. Uh, and they, they don't start carrying them until the very end of the war. And, and again, not just the women, this was true for all of the PO2s, because every ounce counted. The, the plane had so little capability to carry a payload that the weight of the parachutes, which are pretty heavy objects, uh, would mean they could carry even fewer bombs. They didn't carry many. They had like four little bomb points on their wings, you know, 
50 kilogram bombs, but they didn't want to give up even one of those. And the feeling was that, um, and, and many veterans told me this, you know, what was the point of a parachute? If you land on friendly territory, you can probably land because this plane is fairly easy to, to get back down on the ground compared to some, unless you're just on fire, uh, which just did happen. And if you're, if you're shot down over enemy territory, you don't want to parachute and get captured. And they, they said they'd rather just die than be captured. So it wasn't, uh, it wasn't like the people, the women or the men in these planes were saying, gee, I wish I had a parachute. They were saying, yeah, give me another bomb. And you know, if, if we die over target, I'd rather die than be captured by the Germans. So as a final question, thinking about the work that you've done today uh, in everyday life with modern, um, mili- with the modern military, uh, how do you think the fighter pilots of today compare to the Night Witches? <laughs> well, in, in one way, there's no comparison. In another way, there's all kinds of similarities. Um, you know, the, the kind of aircraft I was associated with, F-4s and F-16s, are, are just <laughs> so infinitely more capable than, than what most of the Russian women were flying. And the conditions are totally different. I mean, not just, you know, that it's women flying it, because I think that was, you know, a minor point. It's, it's the conditions of being in the field, of working on grass fields, for example, having, of constantly rebasing, you know, moving sometimes within days, you know, and and just keeping up with the front lines, having almost no supplies, being short of food, uh, all those things that, you know, wartime is a whole different situation. And wartime on the Eastern Front was different again from from what most other armies experienced. Um, And then, you know, doing it against certain, um, you know, people not really believing in you necessarily. And the women did run into that, although, most units that if they fought with them for very long, they, they, you know, they quickly got over their, their beliefs about women in combat. I, I think if you, put, if you put one of those women into a modern unit, almost any of them would do very well. Now, you know, it's like anywhere. There, there are people at each end of the spectrum. Uh, most of those got weeded out pretty fast in wartime. Uh, so, you know, what you've got left in, in the, the uh, Soviet Air Force are mainly people that are survivors, of course, if they're around for any length of time. Uh, it's literally trial by fire. Um, but I think, you know, I think they would do well in an F-16. If you put, you know, one of those female fighter pilots in an F-16, she'd do great. Uh, one of the PO2 pilots could, I think, you know, handle their own with any bush pilot in Alaska that I knew. Um, how our guys would do if we stuck them over on the Eastern Front in wartime, that would be an interesting time travel movie to do sometime. I'm sure a lot of them would do great. I say guys because in you know, the period I was in the Air Force, it was all men in the cockpit, but um, you know, modern pilots, I think, sorry, that's our cannon going off here in Norwich. <laughs> um, I didn't know if you can hear that boom outside. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, most of the folks I knew, I think would, yeah, there'd be a little bit of a learning curve there too, but uh, they would, it would mostly be in the, um, you know, putting up with bad food and living in a dugout and, and they could handle it. They'd get there. Hearing about the lives of these women and what they experienced is eye-opening. I am truly in awe of how hard the women of the Night Witches worked to be part of the Russian Air Force, and just how brave they must have been to get into these tiny, flimsy light planes without parachutes, night after night. It also shows us how important it is to interview veterans and hear about their life experiences firsthand, because they are so different to the image we have in the West of women's roles during the war. Here in the UK, our women were wrens. They were land girls, nurses, code breakers, and in rare occasions they were spies, but that was it. They were not supposed to be on the front line, fighting alongside men, and in the cases of the Night Witches, surpassing the military achievements of all those men surrounding them. So now I really want to find out more about women's wider role in combat in the Soviet Union, and I have a great guest lined up. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm joined now by Professor Kristen Godsey, who is Professor of Russian and Eastern European Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Kristen, thank you so much for joining me today. You are the author of nine books, which includes the 2018 Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism and Other Arguments for Economic Independence. I am so glad that you're joining us to talk about The Night Witches because I, I think your research is fascinating. Can you tell me a little bit about your studies into gender and socialism? Yeah, sure. So I've been doing research on Eastern Europe for the better part of the last 30 years since the collapse of, of communism in 1989 in, in Eastern Europe and 1991 in the Soviet Union. And I've been initially, I was very much interested in what the impacts of the transition from socialism to capitalism would be on women, uh, but on gender roles more broadly speaking. I actually did one book that was about masculinity as well, and um, what I, you know, what I found, and what has been a really kind of recurring interest in my work, is this really interesting dichotomy between the status of women prior to 1989 and 91 and afterwards, and the ways in which the kind of implementation or the creation of a market economy led to, in many cases, a kind of erosion of many rights and privileges that women in the former Eastern Bloc took for granted. Okay, so let's start with 1917 and the Russian Revolution, because this is something that people may not really be aware of, is that when the Russian Revolution happens, it becomes a very different place for women and they get they get a whole load of new rights and new statuses. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, a lot of people don't realize how progressive the Bolsheviks actually were. And it's 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 not only it's not fair to give credit only to the Bolsheviks, because of course if we go back to the middle of the 19th century, there are all sorts of socialist theorists in Western Europe, in Germany, in France, people like Flora Tristan and Clara Zetkin and August Bebel, who were advocating for women's rights as part of the platform for socialism, more broadly speaking. Um, But that really comes to fruition in the Soviet Union because Lenin appoints a woman named Alexandra Kolontai as the first uh, Soviet commissar of social welfare. And she's really in charge of implementing an incredibly progressive platform for women's rights. And I think that, you know, it's really important to understand that Soviet women were incorporated into the labor force in a, at a very early point that they tried to have, you know, public canteens and public kitchens and mending cooperatives and vast networks of childcare facilities in order to support these dual roles that women had to um fulfilled during this kind of, you know, upheaval of the revolution. Now, it's, you know, it's worth, of course, always mentioning that Stalin did in 1936 roll back many of these very progressive uh, provisions. And the Soviet society becomes very conservative again in terms of gender roles until Stalin's death. But in this very early period between 1917 and the change in the family code in 1936, the Soviet Union is really one of the most interestingly progressive places in the world for women. And a lot of people don't realize how much was done for women in such a short period of time. 
So when we get to the Second World War, Russian women really have a very different generational attitude to the role that they could play in this war than perhaps women in the UK and the US had. Absolutely. So, you know, I mentioned this 1936 rollback of women's rights and really that those are things about like outlawing abortion, making divorce more difficult and really kind of doubling down on sort of traditional family roles. However, Stalin was supremely paranoid of an imminent attack from the West, particularly from the Germans. And so he really also at the same time that he was sort of encouraging women to be mothers and encouraging women to embrace more feminine gender roles more broadly speaking, he was also training them to be, um, you know, military uh, women. He was also giving them access to an incredible amount of, of, you know, access to resources and training facilities for things like flying, for shooting, for parachuting. Um, And so there was a way in which all of Soviet society was being mobilized for what Stalin saw was inevitably an impending war with the bourgeois West. And uh, I have a wonderful colleague at Duke University in the United States named Anna Krilova, and she's written a wonderful book called Soviet Women in Combat, which looks very specifically at the training that was done in the 30s. This was gender mixed training. Uh, there was a kind of really good foundation ideologically for the mobilization of women into combat positions during the Second World War, which was put into place in the 30s. So let's go back to something that you mentioned earlier, which is women in in the military and the roles that they're doing in terms of snipers, in terms of flying. And let's unpack that a little. Can you give me some examples of women in these roles? One of the most famous is um, the sniper Ludmila Pavlichenko, right, who was um, she was 26 and she had been trained as a sniper in the 30s and, you know, volunteered straight away to go to the front and participated in the defense of Odessa and Sevastopol. You know, she, we have, uh, she has a memoir that she wrote uh, later in her life about this. And it's very clear that for her, you know, the, the Germans weren't really people, they were just fascists. And she said that the only Germans that are harmless are the dead ones, um, because any German who's alive will kill women and children. And as far as she was concerned, um, she was saving lives. She she ended up, her official tally was 309 dead German soldiers before she was taken out of the war. But, and, and you know, there were other, there was a wonderful sniper, uh, older woman. She was beyond draft age. They called her the grandmother sniper. Her name was Nina Petrova. And uh, before she died, she had 122 kills. But more importantly, she trained another 512 snipers to go to the front line. This was, I think, which is what is really uh, remarkable is that many of these women were volunteers. There was conscription. It's really important to remember that the Soviets did conscript women uh, between the ages of 16 and 45. But many women volunteered. Uh, many women want now part of the reason they volunteered again, you know, there's always a kind of a more complicated story behind this is that if they were conscripted into labor service into a factory, for instance, making armaments, their rations were going to be much lower and it was really hard work. And so many women voluntarily decided to go to the front because they knew that they would have um, better rations and, uh, you know, possibly more interesting life than in a factory. But on the other hand, a lot of women were trained in the 30s as pilots. A lot of women saw their husbands and brothers and fathers go off to war and they wanted to support them. A lot of women were also really moved by the idea of defending the motherland. Remember, after Operation Barbarossa, you know, this, the, the Germans attacked the Soviet Union in this horrific way. You know, the Soviets were, I think, uniquely, especially the citizenry, unprepared for, as I said, the ferocity and the success of the German attack in 41, because they believed that they were well defended. And in in fact, they weren't, as as I'm sure you know, um, the... The, the, the Germans got very deep into Soviet territory and the siege of Leningrad um, and ultimately to get to Stalingrad, uh, where, again, you have an all-female regiment. Um, uh, the 1,077th anti-aircraft regiment was a, a regiment of all teenage girls who defended Stalingrad during the siege. The, the kind of bravery and the desire to fight and defend their country 
was really, really impressive to um, to a lot of Americans. I mean, Ludmila Pavlichenko herself came to the United States in 1942. She also went to Great Britain, by the way. She was sent in order to try to convince the Western allies to open up a second front so that um, the Soviet Union wouldn't be dealing with the, the Nazis, you know, so much on their own. And, um, you know, the kinds of questions that she gets asked by journalists, like whether or not women are allowed to wear makeup at the front. And, you know, if she, um, you know, does, like, why doesn't she wear nicer clothes? Because her uniform, her skirt is too long and it makes her look fat. I mean, she was outraged by the way that the American press treated her. And, you know, she really stood her own and answered and said, like, you know, look, my, my uniform has the order of Lenin on it. It's covered with the blood of battle. The last thing I care about is how it makes me look, right? Um, when, when asked about whether she could wear makeup at the front, she's like, of course, there's no regulations against it. But who has time to think of their shiny nose when you're in the middle of a battle? I mean, it was, it was really, it, it was really kind of a, a cognitive dissonance, I would say, when, People like Ludmila Pavlichenko show up in London or show up in Washington or New York or Chicago. And, and, and she, when she came, you know, she was 25, 26, and she had already killed 309 confirmed kills. And a confirmed kill has to be witnessed by a second person. So her tally could have been much higher, but those were her confirmed kills. And, um, you know, in Chicago, she told an assembled group of male journalists, look, you know, I'm only 25, 26, and, and I've already killed 309 Nazis. Don't you think you gentlemen have been hiding behind my back long enough? I mean, she was really wow. amazing. Yeah. yeah. She sounds exceptional. And I I am so surprised by by two things. Firstly, that in the West, we have little to no knowledge of these stories and these lives. And secondly, that it only takes a generation to forget that women are just as capable in terms of warfare as men are. Because if you think of the suffragettes in the UK and their fight for the vote, we're looking at a terrorist organisation that was bombing across our country. And it's Emmeline Pankhurst who is sent to Russia as a diplomatic envoy, specifically because of the the changes that they have made and how they how Russia is seeing women in the First World War to plead for Russia's help with the UK. So it's it is amazing to me that we see this shift in the Second World War, where Russia is sending us its incredibly brave and powerful <laughs> warfare, warlike women, only for them to be met with a Western response that is dismissive and cowardly. Absolutely. No, I mean, if you read Pavlichenko's memoir, which is called Lady Death, by the way, that was her nick her nickname. Um, her description of, of, you know, her tour of the West and, and how, um, women especially were just concerned about whether or not she wore silk underwear under her uniform. Right. I mean, there, there was a way in which I think by the second world war, even though, I mean, of course, it's really important to remember that women in the West were mobilized. Right. Um, but they were mobilized in non-combatant roles, right. They were in med they were nurses or they were in auxiliary roles. So the, so, and obviously, you know, in the United States, we have the whole Rosie the Riveter. I mean, and in the UK, well, women were in the in the factories and they were doing all the jobs that men had, you know, left in order to go and fight. So there so people understood that women could work and that women were essential to the war economy. But I think what what we've forgotten and, and that's why it's so important to go back and actually look at these stories of the Soviet women who fought in in World War Two is that women have, you know, really shown themselves to be accomplished snipers, pilots, um, you know, parachutists, and, and, and many, in many other combat roles. In fact, um, if there's another wonderful book called Avenging Angels by Luda Vinogradova, I believe is her name. And in this book, it really shows that a lot of the women who were snipers actually end up fighting with the infantry, 
right, on the front line with the infantry. Um, and there are stories of women who are pulling their male comrades out of uh, out of battle, right? They're going out. There are women who are sappers, right, who are out there clearing mines. So the incredible amount of bravery. Um, the sad, I think, part of the story and another book that I highly recommend that people um, read is by Svetla, um, Svetlana Alexievich, who won the Nobel Prize for Literature. It's called The Unwomanly Face of War. And it's a, a series of oral histories that she did, I think, between like 1978 and 2004 of Soviet women who were demobilized, who survived the war and came home. Um, so the numbers that we have are there were about 800,000 roughly women that fought in combatant in, in, in that fought in this um, Second World War in both combatant and non-combatant roles. If you include the partisans, the women who were also involved in the partisan um, struggle, it's probably closer to a million. And quite a lot of those women died. They were probably roughly about three percent of the Soviet armed force forces, 80 women ultimately get designated heroes of the Soviet Union, which is the highest honor that you can get, highest decoration that you could get. Um, and, and although many women died, many women also, you know, were demobilized and went home. And it was very, very difficult for them to reintegrate into Soviet society. And I think Alexievich tells their stories beautifully. Ludmila um, Pavlichenko herself suffered from incredible shell shock. Um, she struggled with alcoholism throughout her life and she died fairly young at the age of 58, um, you know, suffering greatly from the post-traumatic stress of, of war. And many women who came back from the Second World War and had witnessed these atrocities and had witnessed so much death and destruction struggled greatly with um, psychological issues. And there just really wasn't a lot of recognition of the role, even within the Soviet Union, until, you know, the 60s that women had played um, in defending the motherland. So why is it that we have these this amazing, in some ways, success of the Night Witches, success stories of the Night Witches, who are obviously incredibly skilled as fighters, why don't we then see night witches across the world? Why don't we see them in the UK? Why don't we see them in the US? And why do we still struggle today with the idea of women in the military? You know, that's a, that's a great question. And um, I do think that, first of all, you know, the German soldiers were horrified when they saw women's bodies you know, strewn out dead and disemboweled and um, mutilated on the battlefield. There is something very psychological about war. Um, and the way that we motivate young men to fight for their country is often in very gendered terms, like you're protecting the women and children at home from foreign invaders, right? So, so there's a, a kind of discursive necessity to keep women out of not out of combatant roles in order to kind of motivate men to protect them, quote unquote, right? Um, I think that's that's the one um, the one really that's one part of the story. Now, again, it's worth remembering here that there are women that are drafted compulsory military service in places like Israel, um, in Cuba. In 1958, Fidel Castro created the Mariana Grajales Brigade, for instance. So we have, and in Vietnam, women also fought. Um, so we do have examples of, of, of other women in military roles, in combatant roles. Again, largely, I think, in socialist and communist countries, um, although Israel here is a is a is an exception to that. But, um, but I do think, so that's the, so the first thing is there's a, a sort of a psychological need to gender violence masculine. But I also think that women do also, I mean, let's talk about like some brutal realities, which is that women face, you know, rape um, and, and the torture of women that are captured is much more brutal than it is. I mean, all torture is brutal, right? But the, the kind of violation that women face in warfare and, and we saw this very clearly um, and with the way that the Germans did treat women soldiers. They were they were mutilated. They often had their breasts cut off. Um, they were gang raped to death. So, you know, this the the 
snipers uh, that we have uh, memoirs from talk about always having a bullet in their pistol for themselves, right? So if they ever got captured, they would shoot themselves. So, so I think there's another kind of just practical reality, right? Which is that um, there's this sort of horrifying uh, reality of women's bodies being um, violated in a particular way that, you know, obviously a lot of women would like to avoid. Um, And then finally, I also think that, look, somebody's got to build the weapons at home. Uh, And so when you're mobilizing a society for war, it's very easy to have a gender division of labor whereby the men go off and fight and you mobilize the women into the factories and the women into the jobs and on the home front. And, And that's really what we saw in the West. It's much easier to do it that way. There's just a very clear gender division. And and then when the men come home, you can shove all the women back into the kitchen, which is what happened in the United States, right? Um, just get them out of the factories and tell them to like, you know, bake lots of cookies. And They'll love it. Appliances. It'll be great. This is where you're It'll happiest. You don't want a exactly. job or a career. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So yeah, I mean, I do think that, look, you know, war is awful, um, and if you read some of the, the memoirs of these women who fought in the, in the Second World War, many of them didn't want to go to war. You know, many, many did volunteer. I think that's really important to point out. But many were also just conscripted. I do think that it's a, it's a complicated issue, right? On the one hand, many people say that women should have equal rights to fight in combatant roles. And, and I think quite sensibly, there are a lot of women who are like, no, thank you very much. We'd like not to be drafted, right? So it's a complicated issue. It's not that um, cut and dry. But at the end of the day, I do think that there is just sexism and that a lot of men in the West, especially in the United States, um, but I think throughout the West, just don't think that women are going to be as good in combat roles as men are, um, that they're not as reliable or they're too emotional or they're not strong enough. You know, whatever whatever the argument is, there is a resistance. And, you know, there is, and I think that that's a resistance that is deeply rooted in a kind of patriarchal culture that sees that genders violence as a masculine attribute. And the, what makes the Soviet Union so unique, I think, is that, you know, for better or worse, and I'm sure there are many people out, of there, out there who would say this is not necessarily a good thing, violence and the ability to fight well and defend your country was ungendered really from the 1930s onwards, you know, in a very specific state directed way. And so, you know, if you look at the history of the Soviet Union, that's a that's multiple generations of women who were, you know, who grew up believing that men and women were equally capable of defending their country. Um, and we're equally capable of bravery and we're equally skilled in these, you know, professions that we associate with masculinity. And of course, it's not only in warfare. If we look at the history of, of, of the Eastern Bloc, we see that in Eastern Bloc countries today, we have more women in science and technology. We have a higher percentage of women doctors. There are there are many more women in mass, what we would think of in the West as masculine professions in the Eastern Bloc, in the former Eastern Bloc, than there are in the West. Um, there was a really interesting paper that came out just two years ago called Girls, Socialism and Math, which showed that the gender gap between boys and girls on a standardized test that's given across the European Union is lower in former socialist countries than it is in countries that have always been capitalist. And so it's not just in warfare. I do think that East European countries were very successful again, for better or worse, in creating this idea that men and women have equal capabilities of contributing to the economy and to the defense of their countries in the case of war. It's so cool to hear our experts' different views on how women became night witches, from Raina's perspective that these are empowered women fighting for their place in the military, whereas what we've heard from Kristen is a totally different story of conscription, of very young women, teenagers in some cases, fighting in terrifying battles and facing horrific atrocities. We know at the Battle of Stalingrad, the city was defended by the 1077th Anti-Aircraft Regiment, an all-female unit of young women with little training in the anti-aircraft guns they were using, yet who turned their guns on the advancing German tanks in defence of their city. 
But maybe this is just showing us the reality of long wars. You start out with highly trained, highly skilled individuals, but as the war goes on, you lose those soldiers. And you still need bodies in planes. You still need people defending your country. What I've learned about the Night Witches and all of the female soldiers in the Russian units is how hard they worked and how impressive their abilities as soldiers were. Not just because they were women, but because they often outstripped the men around them. It's also incredibly disappointing to hear the reaction of the West when female soldiers visited from Russia asking for aid. The question about whether or not they were able to wear makeup is idiotic. I think Kristen's last point on men and women's capabilities is really important. Perhaps one of the things we can take away from the story of the Night Witches is not only their bravery, but the acknowledgement that if you give men and women the same opportunities and make sure they are equally provided for, then you will have a better society. One where everyone plays a role and no one is held back. That's it from me on this episode of Not What You Thought You Knew, and if you have a historical character, story, or legend you think we need to feature on the series, we'd love to hear from you. Get in touch with us on social media using the hashtag NotWhatYouThought, or by searching for at HistoryUK or at FernRiddell. And we love getting your reviews, so please hit that button on your podcast app and let us know what you think. For more information on this or any of our episodes, head to skyhistory.co.uk. And finally, a big thank you to my guests, Dr. Raina Pennington and Professor Kristen Godsey. This episode of Not What You Thought You Knew was hosted by me, Dr. Fern Riddell, produced by Kim Sargent and Pete Ross, and our series producer is Sam Pearson. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.